this is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. We've been off for the last few weeks, allowing us both to reset and get caught up on the end of the year films that needed to be watched. While every other publication put out their own best movies of the year list, we here at ContraZoom like to be contrarians and will not release our best of the year list until after the Oscars, because that is usually how long it takes to truly get caught up on movies from the year prior. Today's episode, we're going to go over the biggest news stories that ruled the industry, from the rise of screener links to a superhero suing the House of Mouse to a movie released two weeks before the end of the year that ended up being the highest grossing film. Rachel, how was your time off? We actually met up for the very first time, actually, uh, and we surprisingly didn't even talk about movies during this uh, little meetup. No, instead, I decided to take the time to take pot shots at how the West Coast doesn't know how to clear snow. Well, yes. BC specifically, I'm not going to lump Alberta in with them because they know how to clear mm-hmm. snow. But and BC, yeah. Oh my god, I, I'm not even going to get started <laughs> on that. BC, get your get your infrastructure together because it's not cool. Um, I've been good though. About the weather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good time. It was great. It was good. I'm a riot to have one. The trip. brunch was delicious. Yeah, yeah, it was actually. It was very, very good. I got rice because you know. Such such is the way. That's why, what I do. Why, why why did you get rice? It sounded delicious. You offer me fried rice at like 10 a.m. I'm down for it. <laughs> I'm fine with it. They're like, it comes with an egg. It did. That made it breakfast. Although yeah. she didn't need to say that. I would have eaten it anyways. Let's be real, though. <laughs> let's be absolutely real. Uh, yeah, time off has been good. Just kind of relaxing. Like you said, just catching up on end of year movie. I kind of feel like it's, it's never going to be... You're never going to watch everything that you want to watch. So um, how about you, though? How was, how was your, I guess, holiday break? Good, good. Um, I, I wrote one article, which uh, make sure that's linked to in the show notes, the my favorite Canadian movies of the year, mm-hmm. um, which I think was what quadrupled the output that you wrote over the break. <laughs> I Well, I was catching up. I was playing catch up on a lot of different right. reviews and stuff like that. <laughs> Things that probably should have gotten done ahead of time. Um, but yeah, so I, I did, yeah, contributed to a few reviews and, oh, the end of year list, which I think I'd actually already done before the last, before the break. And then some, some list, uh, for exclaim looking ahead at the movies coming up this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which all that's going to be in the show notes. And I'll probably ask you at the end of the episode again, what you have going on. Uh, but we'll talk about that then, but sure. we're going to talk about, um, 2021. Wow. I almost said 2019. No, 2021, <laughs> because it is now 2022, which is kind of mind boggling, isn't it? May as well be 2019. I feel like we should have just society stopped at 2019 and we should just kind of <laughs> go back and just redo the last couple of years. Cause it's been quite a ride, but yeah, I can't just roll that calendar back over. May as well. I mean, what did we really gain from these last couple of years? Let's be honest now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, we've we picked out a few stories that we think were kind of interesting, stuff that we don't normally talk about on this show for the most part, and just sort of revisiting, especially, you know, given hindsight, some of these stories played out over a longer period of time, specifically once we get to the Scarlett Johansson stuff, which was like little updates here and there over the course of several months. So it's kind of nice that we can look back and be like, hey, this is what happened. Uh, so we'll start off with some uplifting news. Back uh, back in March, March 15th, Steven Yeun became the first Asian American to be nominated for Best Actor, which like, congratulations to Steven, but like, wow, 
This took uh, way too long. What was that? The the ninety fourth Oscars, ninety fifth. I think the ninety fourth Oscars. Ninety fourth. Yeah, took yeah, a long time. Shocking. Yeah, but took that a long was uh, time, for yeah. his his role in Minari, which I know uh, I I loved. I, was that? I can't remember. Was that a movie you were a fan of? Big fan of it. I I had a moment of like having to pause the movie because got too emotional for me. I had to take a second um, when the parents were fighting and the, the kids were like throwing the paper airplanes. Yeah. That made me really sad, uh, but and so well-deserved and you're right. Like a long time coming. I mean, but if I were to pick like one of the kind of working Asian American actors today, I think Steven Yeun is probably the one who I would back the most to be the one that'd be like, yeah, he's probably going to get nominated for a lot of stuff uh, in the future. But the cool thing I think about it too, is that not just was it for, um, not just was it an Asian American actor, but the movie he got nominated for, Minari, like a lot of it, it was it was in, primarily in Korean. It was a story about immigrants, but it was all like a Hollywood product. It wasn't um, a Korean film. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying like it's kind of neat to see the progress of movies in being made in Hollywood. That it's not just about you know English language films. And I think that you know they're going to have to turn like a lot of the award shows are going to have to turn their mind to the fact that American films can also be not in English, but very American at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that like often gets overlooked. I was listening to a a podcast recently, one, uh, one called best actress. I'm a big fan of it where they kind of look at the best actress nominees and winners and they, they rewatch all the movies from that specific year and then pick out a winner. It's a comedy podcast, but it's very entertaining. And I was listening to an episode recently where one of the nominees was Penelope Cruz for Volver. And he was sharing this tidbit about how Penelope Cruz was the first Spanish born actress to be nominated for best actress or Spanish born person nominated for best actress. And, and they were so surprised and shocked by that. And then like, I, I kind of feel like every once in a while we sort of need to be reminded the Oscars, while they are a global event and there are movies that are nominated from all over the world, it is primarily an American institution, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. based out of Los Angeles, out of the U S and its members are primarily American. So the, this concept of like, you know, why haven't there been more parasites, which would be awesome if there were, it's because it's American based. And so I think people kind of get a little caught up in that and be like, okay, Hey, 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 let's remember that it's who, who is, you know, making this now it's one thing to be like, you know, uh, Steven Young is the first, Asian American actor to be nominated. That is, you know, that's, that's crazy considering it's not being like, Hey, he's the first Korean born actor. He's the first Japanese born actor. He's the first Thai born actor, things like that, which, you know, then you're getting a little esoteric because you're, you're removing this concept of this is an American institution. Steven Young being the first Asian American actor being nominated is a shock because of the fact that emphasis on the American aspect of Asian American. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially I think it was Bong Joon-ho who said um, that when they kept asking him at the time when he won for Parasite uh, about, you know, what does it feel like to be the first, you know, Korean to, to, you know, win and get nominated, all those kinds of things. And he was saying like, you know, the Oscars are, I think he called it a local, a very local festival. I think that was Mm -hmm. the translation that came out. Um, And I, I completely agree with you. I think people have to remember like the Oscars are not, they're not meant for the world. They are, they are literally a celebration of Hollywood as a system. But I think because maybe the term Hollywood nowadays, it just means the film industry. We get a little bit um, bogged down in that. But if you, if you look at the BAFTAs, for example, like nobody really has that same 
um, that same thought to the to the BAFTAs, and it's probably because it's in the UK and they're celebrating British cinema. Um, so I, I I completely agree with you. I think that like what makes this one special is that it's not just that it's uh, you know foreign in terms of not being in English. Um, the fact that he's American, like Stephen Yun is American, it's taken a really long time for someone like him to to kind of get to the forefront. But hopefully it's not the last. I mean, I, I can't imagine it's the last time um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of really talented actors. And I'm sure he will continue to get nominated um, as he does more and more himself. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and like you were saying, Minari is, despite the fact that it is mostly in Korean, is a very American story because the, this idea of a family moving from one country to another in specifically America and trying to fit into what they believe is the American dream and, and work their way up in life and society and build something for themselves is a very, while not uniquely American, very specific to the American filmmakers that they are in the audience that they're trying to go for. So Minari is very much a, an American film. So it made sense that it was honored and recognized by the Oscars. And I hope that, you know, there's, there's a bit more um, acceptance of non-English movies being you know, Hollywood movies. So, you know, considering how, I don't know the numbers exactly, but the, the percentage of the population who speaks Spanish in the States, like it's out of this world, right? more people speak Spanish mm-hmm. in, in the States than people speak French in Canada. And French yeah. is our, technically our official second language. Um, and yet, you know, I'm sure if, if a Spanish language movie were made within the Hollywood system, people would look at it as if it's not American, but in fact, it's incredibly American. So I, I really hope this is a bit of a change in that. Um, I, I know that, was it the Oscars? They were the first ones who changed the, um, it wasn't best foreign film anymore. It was best was it international film. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And hopefully, you know, the other award shows kind of fall in line with the same thing because it doesn't really make sense anymore to say foreign language. Um, I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit ignorant to say it that way now. Yes, I agree. But speaking of the Oscars, the next big story was on April 27th, the Oscars received their lowest ratings ever, which, you know, was a mix of a few different things. You know, cinemas were closed for the year, so there was almost no new movies released, so almost no one saw anything. All the big blockbusters were pushed back by a year, so there was even the the quote-unquote popcorn movie that people can watch the Oscars to recognize at least the one thing that they'd recognize and like a, a whole bunch of things, like uh, just the pandemic in general, people not giving a crap about stuff like yeah. the Oscars because they've got bigger, more important things going on in their lives, like the real world. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So it like it, it was it was no shocker that it was the lowest ratings ever. And then on top of the fact of this was probably one of the, the worst Oscars I've <laughs> ever watched. Like I don't want to completely relitigate the ceremony. But my God, was it awful. You know, the, the whole concept of having best actor last so that way they oh, could God. hopefully honor Chadwick Boseman who ended up losing because it went to Anthony Hopkins and they wouldn't let Anthony Hopkins have a camera set up in his <laughs> home. So he went to bed. So no one even <laughs> accepted the award. And then they did best picture earlier in the night. And it was just like such a, a thud of a ending. Like none of it made sense. It was, yeah, it was such a bad ceremony. I, that that ending to me is still one of the funniest things to have happened. Like you have, was it Joaquin Phoenix presenting the award? And, you know, obviously Chadwick doesn't win. And, you know, I think it was ridiculous too that they didn't let Anthony Hopkins, you know, just chill in Wales because 
why would you ask, especially at that point in the pandemic, ask, you know, an 80 plus year old man to go to London to do this? You know, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to that. And I think it was so deserving that they just ended it with, I think it was Questlove was like, all right, well, that's the show. Anyways, uh, have a good night, everyone. <laughs> and then it was just done. Yeah. And it was the most awkward thing in the world, but I think kind of well-deserved to, um, to the Oscars for that, because to try to kind of pull that kind of stunt of putting Chadwick or not Chadwick, but hopefully I think they were hoping for a tribute for Chadwick Boseman at the end. Um, but in terms of, I mean, the, like the lowest ratings, it doesn't, it's not surprising in it. Is it every single award show that year had its, had to have had its lowest ratings. I mean, you know, the Grammys, the Emmys, um, the Golden Globes before that, like it was all so low because you're, nobody cared at that time. Even sporting events, like I was actually looking it up to see what the numbers were for like the World Series and Super Bowl and things. Like that. And all of them were at a pretty low point relative to what they used to be. And I think it was just the time of, you know, human history is that the last thing that I think people wanted to see were these actors getting awards right when people really couldn't have gone to see too many movies this year uh, and I think it's a bit of a shame just because I personally really like that year of movies like I like that so many independent movies came to the forefront because like you said the big studio numbers um, took a back seat so I, I to me that was really cool but it is unfortunate that you know even though it was the only thing that was being new and released that year just people didn't people weren't paying attention and I, I can't blame people like there's nothing Obviously, there was a lot more important things um, in the world happening other than movies and the Oscars. So, but it's a shame. But yeah, terrible, terrible Oscar ceremony. Mm-hmm. You'd have to wonder if maybe something like Sound of Metal or Promising Young Woman would have been just completely snubbed if it was a regular Oscar year. Probably, you know, probably. And I mean, Sound of Metal was my favorite movie of the year last year. And I, you know, I people still don't know what it is though when I talk to them about it because they don't realize Riz Ahmed did another movie you know and it's it's too bad but because i think they a lot of people think like oh yeah he was doing um i think it was venom was the one that most people remember him for and I'm like, yeah that or uh, nightcrawler oh uh, yeah yeah right nightcrawler rogue one yeah I, I always forget he was in rogue one um mm-hmm. yeah he was cool in that though but i mean he's a great actor i love him but yeah I, it's yeah. a shame i i wish more people saw sound metal because i think that that was a really great movie mm-hmm uh, yeah, it was a bit of poetic justice for the Oscars and, and mm-hmm. good on them. You know, it seems like every single year there's like an article that was like, oh, it's the lowest ratings for them in forever or the lowest ratings of the decades, the lowest ratings. It's like, stop trying to cater to, you know, an audience size of like 50 million people. You're not getting that. Yeah. Like just, just focus on who wants to be watching your show and make the product for them. Stop trying to attract every single person in their grandmother and their dog and their nephew and their cousin and all this sort of stuff. You're not going to get them. Just get the hardcore diehard movie fans that, you know, are familiar with all of the best picture nominees that have watched some of the documentaries that are excited by the winner of best animated short stuff like that. Definitely. I, I think the heyday of it being must watch television across whether it's the country or the world, like I think those days are over. Like the days of I, that would probably be what the late nineties kind of early two thousands when, when the Oscars probably hit the most um, mm-hmm. for, for the most recent era anyway, that I can remember. Uh, like I always think of when Titanic won, like that was such a big deal, but that was because everybody saw Titanic. So it would, you know, there was a movie that kind of had this name brand recognition. Whereas I don't know if we have that anymore because maybe, 
you know, the movies that are being watched by everybody aren't necessarily the movies that are getting nominated. Um, but I, I completely agree with you again. Like it's, this isn't an award show that is meant for everyone. And by trying to cater to everyone, you're losing out on the audience that would be plugged in if you just did it properly. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, for, for this ceremony, I don't know how critical we can really be about it. I mean, some of the stuff like the changing of the order that's messed up, but everything else, even, I don't know how much we can really criticize it because it was a bit of a tricky time to do an awards ceremony. Like it was being, there were different setups around the world, like in different parts of the world. Um, even within LA itself, they split it up between two buildings. You know, there wasn't going to be a host. It was, it was really tricky for them to pull that off given the time, um, uh, you know, with the pandemic and everything. So I, I, you know, but I think that they were just trying to make it maybe a little bit too much or, maybe they should have just pared it down and just said like, look, we know that it's not ideal this year. So we're just going to do a really, really simple ceremony, but they kind of tried to do something in between there and it just fell a little bit flat. Yeah. All right. Uh, the next story is one that uh, I feel like you're going to be pretty sentimental about. <laughs> and um, that was on, on July 27th, Bob Odenkirk suffered a heart related incident on the set of better call Saul. And there was a good 24 hours, maybe 48 hours where people legitimately thought he either had died or was about to die. It was a pretty scary moment. And it was so fascinating because, you know, whenever anyone dies, whether it's someone like uh, Betty White or, or recently Bob Sagan and stuff like that, where you get these all these tremendous outpourings of, of tributes of what a fantastic person this were, these anecdotes that we've that have never been shared with the public, these great old clips that we haven't seen or revisited for a while and all this sort of stuff. And so we sort of got this with Bob Odenkirk where you have all these people that he's worked with come out of the sort of woodwork of being like, oh my gosh – you know, Bob Odenkirk, you know, everyone says that this person is is the nicest person in Hollywood. No, Bob Odenkirk literally is that person and talking about how it took him forever to really get his due. And it was just this past year that he really had his big movie mainstream breakthrough with uh, with nobody as well, which is I, I know a movie you're a real big fan of. And so it was just so fascinating. And then all of a sudden it was just like, and Bob is OK. And it was just like, oh, OK. I guess we're everything's back to normal then. <laughs> it, it was such a it was such a weird sort of thing where you're you're literally mourning someone's death and then them popping up and being like I'm I'm not actually dead, I'm still here. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your nine puts. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. I think it was a collective worry. Like everybody was like, oh man, I really hope he's all right. And then a collective sigh of relief when they found out he was okay. And then you're right. Like you just kind of move on after that. Um, but yeah, he's obviously neither of us know Bob Odenkirk, but from all that we've heard and read about him, he seems like a really, really stand up dude. And you're somebody that has worked behind the scenes in, especially in comedy for decades now. And it wasn't until pretty much breaking bad, I would say that he really got um, some front of the camera uh, recognition he's done other things obviously but um breaking bad i think was his first one then obviously he had better call saul and then yeah the greatest movie uh, one of my favorites from last year i always gonna say the greatest movie ever but it's not the greatest movie ever <laughs> but it's one that i really like nobody you know and it, it puts bob Odenkirk kirk into a, a bit of a different light and 
I don't know if like, I think when he came out too and, and he wrote on Twitter, like, Hey guys, I'm okay. I wonder if he even thought like people would care that much. Do you know? Like, I think obviously everybody cares an extent. You don't want anybody to die. You, you want to make sure people like, in general, if you're not like a sociopath, you don't take pleasure out of other people dying. But I don't know if he was expecting such a collective outpouring of, of like best wishes and love for him. Um, like, you know, sometimes it's, it's that whole thing where it's sometimes you don't tell people what you feel about them until like they're gone and it's too late, but he kind of had the brink of that because people weren't too sure. Um, so that's in a way kind of, kind of nice, slightly morbid, but kind of nice at the same time. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, you're all, you, you'd love to go to your own funeral, but you know, maybe in reality, you don't actually want to go to your own funeral. It's one of those things. <laughs> That's like that Friends episode. That's all I can think about right now when Ross decided to fake his death so that he could have a funeral or a memorial service or something <laughs> like that. And it takes like a pathetic character like Ross to be like the one who's going to do something like that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know that episode, so I can't really uh, comment on that. <laughs> yeah, other friends uh, other friends watchers on here, they'll know what I mean. That's, that's a oh, clear Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, when Steph hears it, she'll, she'll nod along exactly. with you. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're, we're very happy that Bob Odenkirk is okay. So on September 13th, uh, during the Toronto International Film Festival, or at least when this article was published, was, uh, a whole bunch of stories came out about how screeners were leaking at an alarming rate, specifically ones from Netflix. Uh, this has been sort of a, a tricky thing where in the last two years, as film festivals have been having to go digital, they've been trying to pressure the big studios to allow their movies to still be screened on digital platforms and not have in-person screenings. And it's been a, a pretty big back and forth fight where for the most part, studios have not really been willing to acquiesce on this uh, standing point really of, of, of how to move forward of festivals, whether digital in-person hybrid, things like that. And uh, and it sort of feels like there was a bit of a nail in the coffin with TIFF this year because I think because TIFF is such a big festival and it was the biggest one to be digital only really uh, where when screeners linked, right away we were seeing other film festivals have movies pulled from their digital platform because you could see how scared these distributors were uh, for the most part, I believe they were only Netflix ones that were, that were leaked. It was stuff like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's the guilty. Um, I'm not too sure. Oh, and uh, so did the power of the dog apparently, mm -hmm. which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so that those were, that was interesting because it's one of the things where it's like, unlike some of these films that play at film festivals where, Hey, you'll have to go and see it in theaters. Maybe it'll be a, a limited release. It might not even come to your city. Maybe it'll be in your city four months from now, six months from now, whatever. With Netflix, it's like, hey, we're going to screen at this festival, and then in a month, it's going to be on Netflix anyways. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, like, so first of all, Tiff, Tiff actually did a hybrid um, this past year. There was some oh, in person. Okay. Yeah, part of it was in person. Um, I don't know if Power of the Dog, I know, did have some in-person screenings i'm not 100 percent sure about the guilty i feel like that one was a online one only um a weird thing though was the guilty was literally coming out you said a month i think it was coming out like within a couple weeks of the, yeah. the festival yeah. ending like it was very quick and there was another movie uh that from melanie laurent it was her uh, directorial debut and that that was going to be premiering 
on Amazon Prime with like oh, yeah, the the Mad Woman's Ball. Yeah, and that was literally with I think two or three days after it premiered in the festival, it went on to Prime. So like it within the during the festival period, it did show up on Prime anyways. You know, so it was in it was kind of sad to me that that had happened because um we had, I mean, you and I had done some film festivals before that. So like probably the biggest one was South by Southwest and there wasn't any problems that South by Southwest was fully online and they didn't really have those issues. TIFF seemed to be the kind of the first major film festival that came out because um, Venice was right before that, that had this problem. Um, and it's, it's too bad because I think that the idea of having a digital component at, at like at least I'm not saying get rid of the in-person altogether, but having a digital component for a film festival, I think is a really great thing, you know, whether it was you and I being able to do South by Southwest and we didn't have to go down to Texas, you know, um, I'm about to do Sundance and that's, I didn't have to go to Utah for it. People across the country in Canada or even just within Ontario could um, like Northern Ontario, people could see TIFF movies for the first time and not have to, like, not everybody is able to afford to f- go down to a specific city, spend the hotel, spend the flight, whatever it might be. Um, and then, and the tickets on top of that. So I, I thought a digital component for a film festival was a great way to open up access to people who just want to watch good movies or new movies, interesting movies, movies that might not make it to the theater, or they will be in a very limited release. And if you live in, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, you might not ever get a chance to see it. But through TIFF, you know, they had that ability. So it, I, I thought it was very, you know, disappointing that some people decided to leak the, the those screeners. And I mean, it was a couple of movies only, um, but they were pretty big movies too. You know, we had big names, Jake Gyllenhaal, Benedict Cumberbatch. And I mean, especially with Power of the Dog, we're going to see that um, all throughout the Oscars and the other awards shows coming up now, because that was a really big movie. So yeah, I, I I was a little bit disheartened by by that news when it when it came out that uh, there were some leaks. Mm-hmm. And it also seems to be extending a little bit to festivals not wanting to release screener links mm-hmm. for critics as well. Yeah. Which, like, I really I really hate it when critics complain about oh I want to watch this movie and the studio won't let me. Yeah. I find it a little bit like high and mighty of us because we we're, we're so fortunate to get access to what we do get access to yeah. when we don't get what we want right now. I, critics can get a little whiny for in my books, which maybe that's just me. So <laughs> I agree. Uh, no, well, I agree with that. And I, but I think, I mean, not to defend critics here because like things, but like <laughs> typically speaking, when we get screener links, like those are watermarked with our name or, or emails or something identifying that this is from us. Right. So, you know, it, I don't think that it was really critic links that were the problem. It did seem that it was specifically people finding a link on TIFF, even though I think TIFF really tried really hard with their security on the back end to make sure people couldn't copy it. But I mean, there's always going to be somebody who is able to do it. Um, it is interesting, though, that it was Netflix. So maybe it was like an inside job. It's my conspiracy yeah, theory. Who knows? Because why, why wouldn't it be like, everything? Like, Yeah, it's probably something because Netflix has 
digital files already it probably mm. is even easier for them to get shared because it's like oh hey we need the the qi people to to make sure that it works out we need the developers doing making sure that this works out we need the you know the people doing pr whatever so probably so many people have access to the links and the files it's true whereas with a traditional movie that's about to play in theaters yeah film festivals and theaters get sent digital copies of it but it's like one file you seem to have a lot of deep knowledge about this. Have you been trying to take links and put them on the internet? Maybe. It, you know, because <laughs> as, a, as the vice president of Netflix, uh, my grandfather, Netflix uh, junior, uh, senior, I don't know what I'm going with this joke. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> let's, let's move on from this story. Yeah, you'd uh, move on, on there, wouldn't you? <laughs> To the most interesting story of the year, the most serious yeah. one, and that is how on October 1st, Scarlett Johansson sued Disney and she settled with them. Dun, dun, dun. Now, this is really I feel good. like you, you have more <laughs> insight into this story than I do. So if you want to sort of recap and reshape how this story went, that would, that would be really helpful. Sure. So, I mean, um, it all stems from the release of Black Widow. So, as I think most people are aware, Black Widow was meant to come out in 2020. I think, I, I could be wrong on this one, but I believe it was supposed to be the movie that set off the new phase. I don't know what number they're on right now for the MCU. Um, but following Endgame, I think this was supposed to be the kind of the first thing. Or no, sorry, it was after Spider-Man. Spider-Man was probably the first thing. Um, but anyways, it was meant to be a big movie for for MCU. And, and it was meant to you know link with some of the TV series that were supposed to come out afterwards. Um, but obviously due to COVID, that all got jumbled up. And not only was the schedule you know, mi- mixed up, um, Black Widow ended up getting a uh, Disney Plus release instead of a exclusive theatrical release. And for most of, from what I've heard from, from the Marvel movies, especially the original actors, so the original six or however many um, there are of them, they all, rather than taking um, too much money up front, they were all taking royalties off of the box office numbers. So Scarlett Johansson has made money off of all of the Avenger movies, um, those box office receipts, uh, the Captain America ones that she was a part of. So, you know, that's a very big chunk now of what um, an actor is earning off of a movie, not just their upfront salary. When Disney decided to move Black Widow to Disney+, Plus. Obviously, your box office receipts are greatly um, diminished from that because, well, one, you're not seeing any of the money from subscribers because that hasn't been baked into your contract. Because when they signed that contract originally, uh, there was no idea that, one, a pandemic was going to be happening, but two, that there was going to be a thing called Disney Plus, or at least maybe, you know, maybe in behind the scenes they kind of knew, but I don't think there was ever a consideration that. Black Widow would be released on Disney Plus and not only in theaters. So obviously what ends up happening is Scarlett Johansson takes a not a pay cut, but she just misses out on a good amount of money and she she takes a effectively a loss. Um, and she was not happy about that. But what I would say is a lot of people criticized her for being greedy on this, but I think she was really right to put this lawsuit out because it does set a precedent for all of the other movies coming out afterwards. Um, with Disney, Marvel, and other actors who might have their movies shoved onto a streaming service, which happened a lot over the last 
year and a half, two years, however long. Um, so initially Scarlett Johansson was, uh, filed a suit for breach of contract saying that the contract said it was meant to be, um, uh, theatrically, exclusively theatrical release for, you know, however many days, but what she was trying to base it off of was, um, previous conduct. So in the past movies had stayed in theaters for say 90 days, about three months, maybe even four months, depending on how well it did. And then it would go to home video. And even though, though, that wasn't specifically stated in the contract, um, Johansson's team was trying to argue, you know, hey, we're going to like we're basing this off of previous um, our previous you know, transaction with one another. They ended up settling, which I think most people decide like knew that that was what was going to happen. Disney was never going to let this go to court. But I think it, like she was correct in what she did, even though I don't think she really had the law on her side like disney could have fought her on this if they wanted to but they did would have looked really like pricks if they did um so she settled and she got some money from it i think it's worthwhile to mention that before this had happened disney or not disney sorry warner brothers had paid out gal gadot and patty jenkins for uh, world war ii for wonder woman 2 world war 2 they got paid for world war 2 uh for wonder woman 2 they got paid out because it was going to go to hbo max rather than um in theaters that was in december 2020 um Mm -hmm. so it's worthwhile to say like they did get a payout and scarlet never was approached for a payout um, um, or any, you know, any of the other kind of uh, Disney Marvel people weren't approached for payouts. So, you know, another one was um, uh, Emma Stone with Cruella that ended up going straight to Disney plus didn't even get a theatrical release at all. Um, and she didn't do anything about it. So I think you needed somebody like Scarlett with her position within the Marvel universe, her position just as an actor in Hollywood in general to really put her neck out there and take on Disney not many actors, like even Emma Stone, for as successful as she is, I don't think she's quite at the spot that Scarlett Johansson is, that she can stick her neck out very comfortably and know that if Disney never wants to work with her again, it's fine. She'll find other work yeah. elsewhere. Like, it'll be okay. Yeah. I think I think the real kicker in a lot of this is that Scarlett Johansson and her team reached out to Disney and was like, hey, let's renegotiate the contract so mm-hmm. that way it's all done correctly and fairly. And they didn't respond to her lawyer's emails. And so I think that was probably something that was really in her favor that uh, that they can move forward within the courts if, if it went that far of being like, hey, look, their lawyer, Disney's lawyers weren't even responding to our requests. Like, mm-hmm. we tried to be fair. We, try, we tried to settle this from the get-go, which, like, really, I think – goes a long way in the eyes of, of a judge of like, was your client trying to resolve the issue first before you come to the courts? Yeah, that's true. In this true. case, yeah. Scarlett Johansson was trying to settle this before it went, before it got escalated. Absolutely. Yeah. She did try to mitigate it, but you know, Disney is Disney and they're a massive, not just like they're one of the largest corporations in the world at this point. Right. So yeah, they, and they, they are, they absolutely are. Yeah. And they, and they own pretty much half of Hollywood at this point. So mm-hmm. I, it was a fascinating story to see unfold um, for various reasons, but like the precedent that it sets is, you know, it's, it's immeasurable in a way because now you're going to have studios who, when they go to, to sign new contracts or you have actors who are going to go approach the studios now and say, Hey, we need to renegotiate or at least put a clause in here because who knows what's going to happen with, you know, with our movies now. And, and, and they're very right too. Cause 
I mean, at any given moment, movies could be, movie theaters could close down, the, you know, and that, that is happening. We're seeing it like in Ontario, movie theaters have shut down again. So, Yeah. And, and I think it also really is a good precedent setting because of something like um, if, if a famous person does a cameo in a movie, mm-hmm. they can't do it for free. They mm-hmm. have to do it for what scale rate is in the union. So whatever an actor would make, for a day rate, which is, you know, a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, whatever it is. I can't, I, I don't know the exact amount. That's how much they have to get paid. So you think of something like Brad Pitt in Deadpool two, where he literally, you see his face for half a second. He, he did shoot that. He actually yeah. shot that on a green screen. Uh, but you think of any, you know, comedy where someone shows up for a scene and that's their cameo or they're playing themselves or whatever it is. They have to get paid what, uh, a regular actor would get paid because then it sets the precedent that if they're like, Oh, Hey, well, Brad Pitt worked for free. Why don't you work for free or for less <laughs> or things like that? And, and, you know, in a world of, of capitalism where if your employers could pay you any less, they legally would, uh, then they legally could, they would, uh, it's, it's good to have these sort of precedents. And unfortunately that means that the biggest people on the top of the, the pyramid need to be the ones enforcing this. So someone like Scarlett Johansson needs to be enforcing her contract. Definitely. I mean, that also speaks to, there was a whole thing, I mean, this was probably a few years old now, where Jennifer Lawrence was talking about her pay inequity. Um, and I know a lot of people gave mm-hmm. her some crap for being like, come on, man, you make like millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> like, what the hell? But the the, thing, the point of it is, is not for her to get an extra couple million. It's more of just yeah. to say like, hey, like, we're going to be loud about it and make a big fuss about it. And there hopefully will be a trickle down effect, which there was, you know, and hopefully, well, I think that there was. Um, so yeah, like I said, Scarlett Johansson doing this was a really bold move on her part, but uh, I think it was really cool of her to do that because mm-hmm. you need somebody like her to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Now moving on, uh, in October 26th, just uh, as the, the, I believe it was the first weekend of Dune being released and there was this whole, will it or won't it get a sequel? Because I'm sure by now everyone has, has seen it or everyone that wants to see it have seen it by now. Uh, it's only one half of the, the novel. It's not the full novel. And so Denis Villeneuve originally, you know, uh, propositioned, Hey, this is going to be a two parter. We, we can shoot both at once. And the studio was like, no, nah, we're not doing that. We don't, uh, we don't know how much money this is going to make. We will greenlit one for you. And if it does good enough at the box office, well enough for the box office, then we will green light Dune two for you. And then what ended up happening, much like a lot of movies, it went day and date streaming. So it was released in theaters and then also released on HBO Max, like Black Widow, like a numerous other movies mm-hmm. in this past two years, really. And I believe it was basically the first weekend where they're like, okay, yeah, we've seen enough numbers. Uh, we'll give you the sequel. <laughs> I still don't understand how they couldn't green light a part one and a part two. Like that would have yeah. been so incredibly weird to have a part one and regardless of how well it did right like it would have just been so odd to just be like we have half a movie and you could point that down to like well Denise just should have done the first the whole movie in one go but i just find it find it such like a fascinating decision from warner brothers to be like no we're not going to green light the full book which is the full story we're just going to green light half of it for you I like I borderline I actually thought it was um I'm very big on these conspiracy theories. I really thought maybe it was a publicity stunt. I was like, there's no way that they couldn't have given Denis some security knowing like he will be able to do part two. 
Because I just thought it just seems so mad to me that that was a decision that they decided to take. Yeah, and especially since we've now seen movies like Lord of the Rings or mm-hmm. the upcoming Avatar movies, it works a lot better if you have these very intense, you know, action epics with lots of CGI and big sets and big casts and things like that. Just do it all at once. It yeah. makes so much more sense because what's going to happen? Dune, this was supposed to come out last year, so this movie must have been shot in like 2019 or something like that. So the, it was shot in 2019. We're now not going to get Dune 2 until, what, a year and a half, two years from now? I think like, honestly, I can. It's, it's so stupid. I Yeah, I agree. I, I just don't. I mean, I know that the pandemic messed things up and nobody could have predicted that that was going to be a factor. But even to me, even if you don't fit in the pandemic, I just think it's a crazy, crazy move that they wouldn't have just greenlit both. Because like you said, you know, Lord of the Rings and um, Avatar, even Infinity War and Endgame, those were shot like right at the same time. You know, and and um, was it Harry Potter was I think was probably done the same way. Um, it's just so weird. It's such a weird decision. Like I would have loved to have been in that room where they were deciding whether or not to give him part two. I just find it such such an odd ball thing that they did, and maybe we'll never know why they actually did it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, so it was it was definitely a very weird situation. Um... And but it's it's good that we're we are getting part two because yeah. part one really did end on a, a, a cliffhanger because that would have been like so frustrating because you watch it and you're just like okay this is literally just half of a story. I mean, then like Zendaya fans would have been pissed too. They already were kind of upset <laughs> that he, she wasn't really in this one. But it's like at least she could be like, look, she's going to be really big in the next like the next one. Don't worry about it. Um, but I mean, I loved doing the, I know, I, I think I liked it more than you did, but like, I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm super, super happy that he's going to be able to do part two for it. But yeah, I just, I just, I still can't wrap my head around it. And there's, there's so much risk involved. Like, you know, what if the, the actors, like they look really different, you know what I mean? Like what happens? I mean, chances are they won't cause they're not kids, but, um, what, I don't know. What if Chalamet looks com- like a completely different dude by in two years time? I don't know gonna be Mm -hmm. weird yeah but whatever glad we're getting it and i'm glad uh denis i'm glad the first one hit as well as it did too like i'm glad that people responded to it because there was a bit of doubt whether or not a movie like that was gonna do numbers um just given that it was such a niche sci-fi thing and and, david lynch's didn't doesn't exactly have a great legacy to it so but it it had some Mm -hmm. good young names but i'm really happy it did well and i'm happy we're getting a part two because like you said that would have been really frustrating yeah all right, moving on into actually uh, not pleasant news. Back <laughs> in October 22nd, Alec Baldwin accidentally shoots and kills the cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of uh, the movie Rust that they were working on, which was a, a very tragic thing. This was, as, as far as we still know, it, it's a bit of an ongoing story still. It, it's not completely resolved where there seems to be a bit of finger pointing going on. But what it seemed to have happened was Alec Baldwin was given what he believed to be a cold prop gun, which means a prop gun that had either no bullets or no live ammunition in it. And what sounds like when he was setting up the shot with the director and the director of photography uh, in front of him looking at the angles and he fired this prop gun but 
it actually had a live round in it. And unfortunately, standing right in front of him at point blank range was Helena Hutchins, who unfortunately lost her life and died almost immediately. This prompted a whole bunch of questions that arose about how this could have happened. You know, ever since the death of Brandon Lee on the set of um, The Crow, on the name of that movie. Of the crow back in the early 90s gun safety has been so mostly concerned about on sets where like you you literally cannot be more concerned about that than than anything else like it doesn't matter how how fake the gun is you know they, they still do all the proper procedures as if it is a real gun um and so this raised a whole host of issues it sounded like there was quite a bit of negligence going on the the person in charge of the props was not a very experienced person the person that handed Alec Baldwin the gun, I believe, was an assistant director, didn't double check it. It sounded like it was a long day of, of shooting and, and re- things were getting lax around the set. And it sounded like there was a few other close calls earlier on this set. So, so it all sort of culminated in this very tragic but easily preventable accident that uh, unfortunately lost uh, cost the life of someone uh, who was very up and coming in the industry and, and had a lot of t- great talent and was, you know, someone that's going to be dearly missed. The whole chain of events from this one was really interesting to see play out as well. Like the first story comes out is uh, somebody shot, you know, a, a cinematographer. It wasn't even, I don't think people said that. It's just somebody died on a set, on a movie set from a bullet. And then it turns out, oh shit, it's Alec Baldwin. Like, okay, it's a big name. And then it goes into, you know, a lot of people, I remember seeing on Twitter people saying like, Alec Baldwin needs to be charged for murder. And I'm like, well, calm down. That's not how that works. Um, and then, you know, going to being really sympathetic to Alec Baldwin because, you know, as the actor, it's not his fault. That's like, he shouldn't be the one that needs to, to do the safety checks when he's handed a weapon. It should be like good to go. But then it kind of turned around on, well, he's also the producer on it. And there were some, you know, back and forth on that about union stuff and non-union workers and, you know, whether they were skimping because the budgets were too tight or something like that, you know, and, and we'll get the full story eventually, I'm sure. Uh, like you said, the investigation is still going and I, I kind of get the feeling it'll be going for a little while. Such a sad, sad story though. Like I, you talk about the crow and Brandon Lee, um, the John Wick director, Chad Stahelski, he was Brandon Lee's stunt double on that. And he ended up taking over for Brandon Lee after he passed away so that they could finish up the movie. Cause I think there was only a little bit left to be done. I've seen so many interviews with Stahelski talking about gun safety. Cause obviously John Wick, they use a ton of guns um, and how after everything that happened with Brandon Lee, he was such a stickler for these things um, as you should be, you know, he's you, you should be incredibly uh, super, super conservative and, and, and risk adverse in, in what you do because think something like this could happen and i didn't think that it would take another death on a set um for people to to think about that again um yeah i don't know if there's calls for for stricter regulations on set whether it's through the unions or whatever but i think some changes need to be done because you can't let these things slip through the cracks uh because it's like very preventable as you said and just such an unnecessary uh loss of life in this in this case all right, and then the last news story we want to talk about is on December 9th, Jesse Smollett is found guilty of falsely reporting a hate crime from 2019. 
I was shocked when <laughs> I completely forgot about this story completely. And so it was like, what? This is still going on? And then reading about it being like, what? This only happened in 2019? I thought this happened like five years ago. It is, Which just shows yeah. like how how warped our sense of time has been these last two years where uh, at the time when when I was writing this, something two years ago was mind-blowing. And like, I, I could not believe this had only happened two years ago. It's incredible. Like, I, when this story came out, I remember being so amused by it just because, I mean, it's not funny. You shouldn't, obviously, you shouldn't fake a, a, a hate crime. But just, like, the details that came out of how idiotic Smollett was, it was just, like, that amused me greatly. And then, like you, I kind of forgot about it. Like, you just, it was a punchline, but then it just kind of went away. Because, again, the world had more important things to worry about than this idiot just trying to pretend that two guys mugged him in the middle of winter in the middle of the night Chicago like you know but then when I saw it come up again I I said to you I thought this is hilarious when you talk about this again because not only was it just it rocked I mean that was it was pretty big news when it happened Um, and then the fallout from it became even bigger news Uh, and yeah like you said the you know time warp that two years later it finally got resolved that's also a bit of an indictment on the american justice system that it took two years for something like this to get resolved <laughs> um unbelievable but yeah it's it's such a interesting really random story as well just you know like you know we talk about the chain of events for the alec baldwin situation the chain of events for this one too was like people being outraged on his behalf and then him just completely turning into a punchline um, it's just, it was so fascinating and weird. It was really weird. Like it was very strange that he, how, why he did this or how he went about doing it. Like it's, it's such a strange story, but, um, a highly amusing one. Yeah. It, it was so weird because like, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but like the, the, the big damning evidence was he had like wrote a check <laughs> out to these would-be kidnappers Basically, call like in the, in the memo line, calling it like lynching supplies or something <laughs> stupid like that, because that was the big thing. He's like, "Oh yeah, I was mugged, and but it was a hate crime because they had uh, a noose with them, and like, and it was just like, it was like, what? Who who is robbing people with nooses? And so like, right? It was just it was so confusing. And then like, you find that this guy is so stupid that he like writes a personal <laughs> check." Like who does that? It was I sent it to you before, but like if you watch the, anybody watches the TNT basketball with like the the pregame and postgame shows <laughs> with Charles Barkley and Shaq, and then it's like Charles Barkley has the greatest clip on that, like where he just kept bringing it up, and then he kept saying like Jesse, like if you're gonna commit crimes, do not write a check, like just cash, just do cash, go to the ATM, get some cash out, and it is like the funniest thing in the world that this guy thinks. He's so clever, you know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this hate crime. Um, let alone, it was like I think three in the morning, and it's in the dead of winter in Chicago. And, and I think in that day, it was particularly freezing, like really, really, really cold, even by Chicago standards. And yet, it was like, oh, he went to Subway, and these guys were waiting for him, or something like that. And it was uh, the whole thing was so bizarre. But you're right, the. Um, putting in um, um, asking for like or sorry showing that he was like writing a check was 
just like the cherry on top of how funny this whole situation was. Hey, man, so America. <laughs> America, let me just tell you something. Was that? Uh, do not commit crimes with checks. <laughs> Come on, man. You cannot, if you're going to break the law, do not write a check. Because you're writing a check that what? You're behind uh, can't cash. <laughs> Yo, man, you need to cash up. <laughs> hey, get cash, man. <laughs> I never used the ATM. Now, you can only, I heard you can only get $200 out of the house. 500. Stop, literally. Stop. 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 You're going to have to make a lot of stop to the ATM. <laughs> It reminds me of the the line from the Wire. One of my favorite lines from that show uh, when when they're having this big gang meeting conference between rival gangs and things like that. And one of the guys is like, "Is you taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? What the fuck is you thinking, man?" <laughs> it's funny because criminals are like they're as as some clever as some of them are. It's the little details that you just you know that that just kind of that skirt by for some reason, you know, like it's, and it's the fun. Cause they always say like, I mean, this is a, mo- a lot darker than this, but it's like a lot of serial killers get caught by getting pulled over because, you know, their taillight is broken or something like that. Yeah. Like it's always the little things that gets criminals caught, but this isn't a little detail that was overlooked. It's just like it's sheer stupidity of, and like just probably ignorance of the whole situation in general that you just don't realize don't write a check. Don't take notes. Like that's, this isn't the way to do it. You just cold, hard cash. I feel like we're giving tips to criminals now. It's just like cash. Don't take notes. Don't send it by email. Don't do any of that. (laughs) Just keep it up in your head. Yeah. It's like every single true crime docuseries. (laughs) The, the cops are always like, we were absolutely baffled. And, you know, there was no evidence there. We couldn't figure anything out. But luckily, the criminal decided to write a note to his high school girlfriend saying, I murdered five people. Like, Unbelievable. stupid things like that. Unbelievable. It's funny watching those things because you kind of go on side of the criminal. You're just like, God, like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be so stupid <laughs> to do that. God, if I were committing this crime, I would do it so much better. But yeah, I would murder so much. Yeah, I would be a much better murderer than this guy. Like, please, he doesn't even know what he's doing. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, those were just some of the top stories of the year. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about specific movies from last year. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. So we talked about all the biggest news stories of the previous year. Now we're going to talk about a bit about what sort of ruled the box office. And as we've sort of mentioned many times, and as 
everyone who was listening to this is well aware, movies weren't the same this year. They weren't the same last year. There was a lot of stuff streaming, so it made it hard to really judge numbers, but box office still counts for in-person theater screenings. Luckily, some places in the world, you know, notably most of the United States, decided that the pandemic wasn't a thing anyways and just allowed theaters to open. So that didn't really impede numbers too drastically. But I think what was most shocking is the number one movie of the year was Spider-Man No Way Home. That isn't too surprising. What's surprising is it came out on December 17th. So from the 17th to the 31st, that movie made $670 million. Crazy. The number two movie was Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which came out back in September, and it made $224 million, $400 million less. That's insane. Absolutely insane. That's insane. I, have you seen the new Spider-Man yet? I have not. I haven't either. <laughs> That's okay, so good. funny. That oh, wait, you, you know, yeah. I, I meant to. I wanted to, but then um, I was kind of waiting for the the theaters to kind of die down a little bit so that I could go when it was a little bit quieter. And then it never did because people kept going back and kept rewatching it. And then of course, Ontario shut then down closed. Yeah, and then Ontario shut down the theaters. And I'm like, Oh, great. Well, there's certain things now I'm not going to be able to see until they come out on digital. But I'm like, I think it's so great in a sense that this, cause there's been such a talk, like a lot of talk over the last, not even the pandemic, but even just when Netflix and, and prime and all those things became much heavy hitters, heavier hitters. Um, that the box office at theaters were going to go away. This was the death of cinema and blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of nice to see that. No, it's not like the, the box office considering that we are still in a pandemic, that certain countries are still closed or provinces or States, whatever are still closed, closing movie theaters. These movies are still making a crap ton of money. You know, they're, they're making a ton of money and it's just about giving audiences, I guess what they want, um, which is, I think if you cl- like clearly if you look at you know the top five movies, it's all comic book or big franchises that have existed for for many years now, um, and I, that might be disheartening to some, but you know in general I think it does show that there are people who are willing to go out to the theater still, and I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So going over the top ten, we've got Spider Man No Way Home. Number two, Shang-Chi. Number three, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Number four, Black Widow. Number five, F9. Number six, Eternals. Number seven, No Time to Die. Number eight, A Quiet Place Part Two. Number nine, Ghostbusters Afterlife. And number 10, Free Guy. So it's pretty interesting that three, well, technically four, but three of the movies are MCU and three are Sony. Uh, So that's six of the top 10 films. And more interestingly, I guess not so really, is nine out of the ten movies are either sequels or based on pre-existing properties. The only one that wasn't was Free Guy. And if you go for the next original movie, you have to go all the way down to Encanto at number 15, and then right at The Last Dragon at 24, and the M. Night Shyamalan movie Old at 28. So that's that's some interesting little statistics I got there, right? I think so. And it, that's sad to me. I mean, like, it just, you know, I hate that we're feeding into the idea that, you know, studios only need to cling to existing IP, because that's what's going to make them money. Because I mean, clearly, it shows that that is the case, like that is the trend. Um, but which is such a shame, because it's just all new stuff now. Like I saw an interview with uh, McKenna Grace for Ghostbusters, afterlife it was her and um who's the boy that's in finn 
Finn something. Finn Wolfhard Thank from you. Stranger Things? Yeah, I don't watch Stranger Things. So I, I know his name is Finn, and he kind of <laughs> looks like Timothy Chalamet. That's all I know about him. Um, but it was an interview with him, and, and they were saying, like, uh, you know, what what thing from your childhood do you think will get remade in 20 some odd years? And they were like, yeah, our childhood was filled with just, you know, a rehashing of your, meaning the interviewer's childhood. So it was just, they, all they got growing up was regurgitated things or sequels or reboots from, you know, the eighties and the nineties. So they've never really had their own thing um, from their age group anyways. And I'm like, that that sucks. Like, that really sucks that they're not getting that. Because even Harry Potter is, like, kind of old now. Or, like, Twilight's kind of old now. Um, that was stuff that it was when we were younger that was coming out. So, yeah, it just, it, it's a bit of a shame that, you know, something like Free Guy. I think you could even include a, a Quiet Place almost because that is, it comes from an original idea at least. And not from, uh, not, it wasn't a reboot. It wasn't, it's not a, a really, really old franchise. Um, but it's a bit of a shame that it's all you know, pre-existing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess you can say that with, with something like a, a quiet place part two, that it really is only base. It is based on an original property. Mm-hmm. It's not like, mm-hmm. uh, which even I guess fast nine, fast and the furious is based on. Oh, really yes. Content. But they've come very far away from what the original property <laughs> was. Let's be real about F nine yeah. versus F one. Is that what they're called? Is that what they're going to rebrand it as? It's so different. Like I was such, I'm such a huge fan of Fast and Furious, the first one. And I know that it's point break with cars. I get that, but it's such a great movie. I I love it so, so much. I rewatched it not too long ago and I still love it. And it's just like, now that you see F9 just kind of went way off of what it was meant to be initially, but Hey, it's making a ton of money. So what do I know? Like it's, yeah, Mm -hmm. but yes. There were some surprises throughout it, like the fact that Dune made almost $100 million and was the 13th highest grossing movie of the year. That's very good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have stuff like Cruella, which while it was technically a, a Disney release right away, it also released in theaters and places too and, and was the 16th highest grossing movie. And then shockingly, something like The Suicide Squad, which I thought was a very popular movie, was all the way down in 23rd overall. Maybe because it was an R-rated movie. I don't know. That movie, I mean, if you... I'll I'll quickly plug a list that I did uh, in December, which was the most underseen slash underrated movies of 2021. Um, That's for Exclaim. I put... I included The Suicide Squad for it because it's such a good movie. It's so fun. It's such a fun, you know, comic book movie. And I personally, I think that it was just from what I gathered from like listening to some of my friends, um, they thought it was the old one, like the 2016, because they were like, I heard it was bad, though. And I'm like, no, 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 that was the old one, which was called Suicide <laughs> Squad. And this one's called mm-hmm. The Suicide Squad. Wow. And I'm like, why couldn't Warner just have done a bit of like title it a little bit different? Um really kind of drive home the point that this is not really much of anything to do with the 2016 version, you know, without obviously without putting down the original or not the original one, I guess, yeah, the original one. Um, But so many people were confused by it because they had just said like, I heard it was bad though. So kind of like, why would I go to watch if like, if I heard the the original one was bad, Um, which is such a shame because it's such a good movie. And I really hope that they get, another shot to do it. I know that um, John Cena, I think he has a TV show for uh, mm-hmm. Peacemaker. Peacemaker. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. But I'd love to, like, I think, um, was it Birds of Prey the year before um, for, for Harley Quinn? That didn't do very well at the box office either. And I, like, I really want to see more Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn because she's probably, to me, one of the best superhero iterations we've seen on screen. Um, she's phenomenal. So I, I'd love it. Cause I, I was a huge fan of Suicide Squad. I thought it was really good. And it disappointed me a lot that it's not even like people's fault. It's just nobody realized that it was completely different and that you could go in expecting a lot better than what the original one with Will Smith was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they should have called it something like Suicider Squad. <laughs> yeah. Much better. Uh, to be honest, it is much better than the Suicide Squad versus Suicide Squad. I don't know what they were thinking with that. Hire me, DC. Yeah. <laughs> like, watch this space for Warner Brothers. <laughs> uh, all right. Now, you also made a note about uh, the worldwide box office stuff. If you want to just share what the insights you learned from this past year. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to look at beyond. Um, so the box office that Dakota was talking about, which is domestic, is technically domestic, but it also includes Canada. Um, I never understood why they did it that way, but fine, whatever. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to look at the worldwide box office because the pandemic was different in you know, even between just Canada and the US, it was treated very differently. Um, but it also, to me, is kind of forward looking that for movies that are coming out of Hollywood, ho- America is not is no longer kind of the big market that movies are trying to draw in anymore. Um, and I think that the global box office shows that. So, you know, we can look at the top 10 of the worldwide box office. The first one is a movie called The Battle at Lake Changjin which is a movie from China and that made nearly a billion dollars. Um, and that's just domestic, like they're domestic, like just from China. Um, it was $900 million. Another movie high second movie was high mom, which is also from China. Third is no time to die. Fourth, uh, F nine, five detective Chinatown, three, six venom. Let there be carnage. Seven Godzilla versus Kong, eight Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings, nine eternals, 10 Dune. So you can see a bit of interesting things. First of all, three of the, the worldwide box office movies come from China. The other seven are from Hollywood. Um, between the two uh, lists that we both that we just said, five movies share are, are shared between them, and that's No Time to Die, F Nine, Venom, Shang Chi, and Eternals. Interesting enough, like Spider Man, Black Widow, those other movies didn't make you know the they didn't really even crack the top ten for worldwide. Uh, and I don't know how that shows like a big kind of disparity um, between them or between the two. And if you look at the top three box office that didn't have a China release, um, or sorry, the top three domestic box office releases, I guess that doesn't include Spider-Man, but um, they didn't have a China release. So Shang-Chi is completely domestic. Uh, Venom, I believe, was domestic as well. And Black Widow is domestic as well. So it's kind of just it's interesting to compare the two lists. Um, and see where I think movies are heading. And you can see that it's pretty evident within a lot of recent Hollywood movies that they are trying to cater towards um, a Chinese audience because that's where the money is going to be in the future. And and Marvel really needs to sort out their relationship with uh, with China. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to get too political about that, but like... It's a little frustrating when, when you clearly will see a scene that is meant to oh, pander to the Chinese audience... 
like it, 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 it so often feels so forced and just, and just thrown in. And it's always funny when they do that. And then China won't allow them because they only allow a certain percentage of non-Chinese made films yeah. to be screened in China. I don't know. I don't know if it's a percentage or if it's a specific number, it's one of them, but it's a very low amount. And so that's why it's sort of a race to include as much Chinese approved content as you can. And it's always sort of funny when they do all that sort of stuff and then they get turned down by China and they're like, <laughs> you did all that and still got nothing. Good job. You just deval- devalued yourself. I mean, what a funny thing was um, with black widow, uh, that didn't get a China release. And the reason for that was nothing to do with kind of what the content of Black Widow was. It was just when it came out. So Black Widow was released in July of 2020 or 2021. Yeah, 2021, we're in 2021. Yes. Um, so yeah, they got, got released in 2021. That month was an anniversary year, like a bicentennial year for China, um, marking the Communist Party's reign. And so that month they were devoting to kind of state made movies like kind of patriotic films so the idea that black widow could come in here um, a not just a foreign movie but an american movie could go in and potentially take over the box office was something they didn't want to risk i'm saying this as if it's fact this is just kind of what people are assuming in, in terms of uh of the you know, kind of what was going on in China at the time. And it does make sense. Like there wasn't really anything within Black Widow that seemingly China would have been concerned about. Um, Shang-Chi was an interesting one, why that didn't get a release over there. Uh, You know, I I think that was kind of funny because I did see a lot of people on Twitter, uh, you know, white people on Twitter being like, you'd think that they would want to see like a Chinese superhero. Like you'd think that China (laughs) would want that. And it frustrated me to no end because I was like, you guys realize how many martial arts movies comes out in China and it's far better than anything Shang-Chi could have possibly done. And that's nothing, I'm not slagging off Shang-Chi. It's just martial arts movies come from a certain part of the world. And, and they're bread and butter. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, obvi- like, and, and the idea that they're saying like, you'd think they'd want to see that. It's like, there's literally a billion of them over there. I don't think they need to see another Chinese superhero they're all like it's not as big of a deal like i think because people were getting confused between the idea of like an asian american versus what i like to say like an actual asian like so a real asian from asia versus those of us who are over here who are like asian diaspora we're a little bit different and i think that like i i don't know if disney and marvel kind of miscalculated that as well um because yeah it was i i don't think like simu lu didn't kind of hit over there as as they thought that he would um, that kind of amused me as well, but yeah, it, it's it's you know I agree with you in terms of seeing um, those little nods to China in different movies. It's frustrating. It really is. There's a new movie that hasn't come out in Ontario yet, but it's released everywhere else called The Three Five Five, with Jessica Chastain, your favorite. She's in that, and there's such a clear, obvious nod to China in it, and it frustrated me to no end that that was there. Uh, but and and like you kind of look at the credits and yeah, there was a Chinese financer, so makes sense, I guess. I don't know, but I mean that's that's what we're going to be seeing, I suppose, in in films from here on in for the foreseeable future, I would imagine. Yeah, probably. Well, uh, I think that's a a good place to wrap up. Uh, do you have any last thoughts on the year that was twenty twenty one? bit of a dumpster fire year wasn't it it was it wasn't a great year i don't think like i feel like 
2020 was this year where a lot of us came together and it was very community driven almost because I think people, it was the first time collectively speaking, um, you know, we were all in it together. And then 2021 was just us people getting really angry at one another. And I think the movies kind of, you know, for movies specifically, not that it reflected the anger that people had, but, you know, it felt very kind of slap and dash almost because you had stuff from the previous years and you had other things that were created during COVID. So it was a real mishmash of films that were coming out. Uh, you know, there, I, like, I remember seeing, um, I can't remember which screening I was at now. I think it was for Respect, the Aretha Franklin movie. Um, and they had a commercial for No Time to Die. And it was, and they didn't change the trailer. And it said like, coming in April, 2019. Um, and everyone laughed because it was like what the, like it's two years ago now. So yeah, it's, it's, it was an interesting year in movies. Um, I personally, I think, preferred 2020s movies to 2021s, if I'm honest, but that's for another show. Yeah, I, I, it, was, it was an interesting year. We, uh, we saw some good stuff. <laughs> some stuff got pushed around. I don't know. You're I mean, really grasping at straws to, to try to bump 2021. It wasn't a great year. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> you know what? I will say... It was a good year for ContraZoom. We we mm. published uh, almost forty five episodes. You know, you you became the permanent co host, and I think it was a really solid year for for us. And uh, and I like the way that the podcast is trending. And so maybe I'm sort of conflating the two <laughs> of good podcast year, or mediocre movie year. I mean, what's more important, really, in the grand scheme of things? Good podcast year, good movie Numbers. year. It's obviously good podcast year. So. We can take yep. that as the win for 2021. <laughs> well, I think this is a good place to end. We talked about the beginning, but uh, Rachel, what are you working on and where can listeners find more of your work? Um, as always, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, underscore Rachel KH. And you can also see the most recent thing that I had published was with Exclaim. And it was the most, I think it was the 16. It ended up being 16 most anticipated films of 2022 and hopefully those films stay in 2022 because the way it's looking it might that that all those movies that we put in might not actually come out in 2022 now but um yeah hopefully they all come out because there are some really great movies that i'm personally looking forward to uh, and i know that there's some kind of big movies that were held off from pandemic times so it'll be nice to get those out too Mm -hmm. We'll probably do something similar to that after the Oscars as well. Look at what's coming in the summer and in fall of more uh, secure release dates and, and sort of maybe do a, an episode talking about what we're excited for that's still coming out. <laughs> but uh, you can find a link to that article in the show notes as well. I also, as I mentioned earlier, did uh, an article where I, I talked about my five favorite Canadian films of the year. They were all movies that I saw during film festivals, so not all of them have wide releases yet. But if you do like Canadian film, you probably might find this article a little bit interesting, I would hope. <laughs> Um, but you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod and uh, let us know what stories you found most fascinating for the past year. Did we hit on any of them? Did we miss any big ones? What were your thoughts on the box office? All that sort of fun stuff. You can send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there too. Thanks for checking us out. Mm -hmm.